guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter seven and chapter seven completed Jesus's sermon on the Mount. But we're not going to go through all of those issues in five, six and seven. That is the Sermon on the Mount. But what we will do is do a quick review of what Jesus talked about in chapter seven. One of the first things he dealt with was judging and he dealt with the issue of not so much as not to judge, but how to judge. That is, judgment should always be rendered in a non-hypocritical way. And then he continued on and talked about such things as what we call today the golden rule is how we should treat others. And that is treating others as we would have them treat us. And this is a summation within itself of what Jesus called the law and the prophets, or in other words, a fulfillment of the word of God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he talked about the instance of prayer, or should we say even how to pray in that one should continually seek answers from the heavenly father, continually ask, continually seek, continuously knock, and God would ultimately render or answer your prayer. But what Jesus did not say was he would give you what you were asking for in prayer because the father only gives that which is good to his children. And then he continued on to say, which was basically the root of chapter seven is the, the idea of who is righteous. And he began to deal with such things as good fruit, good, bad fruit, good tree, bad tree, and then narrow road, broad road. And so he dealt with all of these issues in saying simply that the one who truly knows me, receives me as Messiah, or we would even say in our vernacular today, one who is truly saved is such one who has evidence of salvation in their lives. In other words, as Jesus summed it up, you will know a tree by the fruit that it bears. You will know a saved person because a saved person will aspire to live a life that is pleasing before God. So with all of that, let's get into, and then it finally ended with judgment. The issue is the two foundations. Such people, such ones in the two classes, the righteous and the unrighteous, the truly saved and simply the hypocritical can be summed up by two foundations. One in building a house, how you live your life in true faith and obedience to God, building your house on a rock, the other building your house on a sand. Mere or just simple confession without the evidence of righteousness to back it up how you live your life. Such a one builds his house on the sand. When each stand in the judgment, the one who truly lived the life, evidencing that he is truly saved by bearing fruit, such a one remains entered to the kingdom of God. But on the other side, the one who was basically hypocritical, confession alone, or as James simply said, having a faith apart from works, he will be cast into the lake of fire. Now we get into chapter eight. And basically what Matthew does in chapter eight is this. We see what he did in five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mount, because it ended by saying how Jesus taught the people who were listening to him. And that is, 
He spoke with authority in distinction from the scribes and the Pharisees because he didn't do all that quoting this and quoting that rabbi, but he always said, but I say unto you, one who is the Messiah. And so therefore Jesus spoke with authority. Now, as we continue in chapter eight and even beyond, we will see the authority of the Messiah demonstrated, not, not simply as in five, six and seven in the, the things that he taught by his words, he will demonstrate his authority by his power, or as we will see by the signs or slash the miracles that he performed. Okay. So now with all of that, let's just get into chapter eight. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him and the leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Okay, so now we see a, one of the first demonstration of power with the healing of a leper. So what is so unique about this is, even though it is spoken in a very generic sense or as if nothing is really special about this, it actually is because no Jewish person was ever healed by another man uh, another Jewish person with leprosy was ever healed by another man, prophet or whatever, until the time of Jesus. Although Moses had written extensively about leprosy, that is in Leviticus 13 and 14, he dealt with how to deal with a person to, to examine for leprosy, what to do with a person once a person has leprosy. And then chapter 14, specifically how to deal with such a one and the offerings that should be made by a person who has been healed of leprosy, the examination, the thorough examination that was dealt with under the law of Moses. But the point that is interesting is in the law of Moses, you'll find out in Leviticus 13 and 14, they are very extensive chapters, very extensive to the which Nobody was ever healed of leprosy. Now, when I say nobody, let me make you understand this. I know that the scriptures teach that Naaman was healed by leprosy by the prophet Elijah, but Naaman was a Gentile. And I also know that the scripture teach that Miriam was healed of leprosy. But once again, to what I just said, Miriam was healed by God himself. There was no intervention of, of a man, Moses, or any other man. God directly healed Miriam of leprosy. So no Jew was ever healed by another man of leprosy. And therefore it became the belief, it was one of the beliefs concerning what is called, what we refer to as messianic miracles. That is miracles that only the Messiah can do. So it was the common Jewish belief that when the Messiah should come, only he would be able to heal a person 
of leprosy. And that's why it makes this particular miracle a big deal. Okay, so now let's just simply go back into the text again. So a leper came down. He came down and he bowed to Jesus. He worshiped him and saying, Lord, and notice how he referenced Jesus as Lord. And if you're willing, you can make me clean. That it simply is, if it is according to your will, Lord. And so he greets Jesus with such an exalted frame of reference by calling him Lord. And Jesus simply responds to him, letting him know it is the Messiah's will. And there seems to be a tenderness in his voice as he stretches out his hand and touches him. Now, the thing that you have to understand what makes this uh, something of great affection is once, first of all, the examination of a person with leprosy. Only the priest can examine a person with leprosy and declare that a person has leprosy and only the priest can examine a person when he has been healed of leprosy and declare a person to be healed. So when the priest would declare that the person has leprosy, the individual was ostracized from society. And if ever he should come near another person, that person would always be cloaked and should say out loud, unclean, unclean as a warning to anybody not to come near him. And if such a, and so therefore you would know not to even make contact with this person, especially not to touch this individual. Okay. So what we see here in the actions of Jesus is his affection. Jesus could have healed the leper without a touch, but he chose to heal this leper by touching him. And this is an indication of our Lord's affection for this poor man, because from the moment that this man had leprosy, he had not felt human touch for that length of time. And this man here was being eaten up by the leprosy as is recorded in other gospels. That is Mark and Luke make reference to this man having been full of leprosy. Leprosy had eaten him up. But nevertheless, let's continue on. So Jesus touched him. Affection showing that it is the will of the Messiah that he should be clean. So affection and also a sign. And then he tells him, don't first, don't go around telling everybody. But he did anyway. <laughs> but to go to the priest and show them and offer the offerings of Moses, which is simply an evidence that Jesus kept all the law of Moses. He did not sin. There was no guile found in his mouth. He kept every commandment because what? As I just told you, Leviticus 13 and 14 dealt with the issues of leprosy. And one of those issues is once a man is cleansed of leprosy, he is to immediately go to the priest. On the first day he had, there are certain offerings that he is to make on the eighth day there will be offerings that such a one is to make. And in between that time, the priests are to examine him and, and make the final determination on whether or not the man has been cleansed of his leprosy. So Jesus simply tells him to go and do that which the law of Moses has told him to do. And then he says, notice to also Jesus says this word, as a testimony 
to them. That is, as the cleansing of this leper, he goes before the priest, it would be a testimony to them. That is, bearing witness of something. Bearing witness of what? Because remember, no Jew had ever been healed of leprosy by another individual. And they had this common belief that only the Messiah would be able to heal of leprosy. So the testimony that this man's healing of leprosy would be to the priest is that the Messiah has come. And so this would be a big deal to the priest and quite naturally, guess what they would do? They would simply begin to ask him, well, who healed you of your leprosy? And of course, the man who was healed would simply say, Jesus of Nazareth healed me. So therefore, the healing of the leprosy would become a testimony to the priest and Jesus is sending that as letting them know he, he's telling them he is the Messiah. The Messiah is here. The priest, you know now that Jesus is the Messiah or concerning the preaching of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is now here. Okay. <laughs> so now let's move to the next section. And when Jesus, verse number five, he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes into another Come and he comes and to my slave do this and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven but the sons of the kingdom will be cast in, out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus is here, as we've seen earlier, that is in the healing of the leper, demonstrating his power. And again, you, the word power, exousia, also means authority. He's demonstrating his authority over sickness, sicknesses, as well as diseases. Okay. But anyway, so what happens? He goes on a little further and there's a centurion. A centurion is a captain of at least a hundred people. He is a Gentile, a Roman soldier with at least a hundred soldiers under him, a Gentile. And this is what's important, a Gentile, okay? And so he comes to Jesus and tells Jesus, he implores Jesus, he begs Jesus to heal his servant. And he uses the term here, pion, which means ba basically a child or a baby. So the idea seems to suggest that it was a young child slave of his, a young Jewish 
child slave of this particular Roman. And he says to Jesus that this child is very sick and is he's paralyzed and being tormented with all types of illnesses, paralyzed, fearfully tormented. OK. And so Jesus simply responds that he would come and heal him. Now, what you have to understand is this. It was the expectation, especially among the Jewish people. And of course, this Roman soldier would also know of this expectation that when one is to be healed, the one doing the healing would simply come lay his hands on him. And so this was the expectation in Jesus's mind as well, that the centurion would want Jesus to come and lay his hands on him and healed him. Now, notice what I said. This was even clearly Jesus's expectation. More I'll say about that in just a second. But when Jesus made the offer to come to his house and healed his young servant, the man declared his unworthiness. He simply said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but as a man of authority, I understand and respect authority as a man of authority. Let me say it properly. I understand and respect authority. And then he began to give examples. I say unto my servant, do this. I go and do this, come and do this and tell my slave do that. And I expect them to do it and they do it. So therefore Lord, that as the centurion is speaking to Jesus, all you have to do is simply Say the word and I respect you as such a one under authority that when you speak that word, my servant will be healed. And at that, Jesus began to be, he began to marvel. He's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is somewhat of a surprise to me because what? I haven't seen such great faith in the sense of be I even been searching for a greater faith in all of Israel, that is, amongst the Jews. But he marveled that not a Jewish person had this kind of great faith in the Messiah, but a Gentile had this great faith. And that's what made Jesus continue to say, I tell you the truth, many shall come from the East and the West. That's a reference to Gentiles and shall sit in the kingdom of heaven, shall recline, that is, because it was always this Jewish mindset that once, once the Messiah brings in the kingdom, there will be a great feast in the kingdom. And so Jesus is talking about that which had not come into the mind of the Jews. What? That Gentiles in a great number will be believing in the Messiah and will come into the kingdom of God and therefore sit alongside of resurrected Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom and enjoy that festive whole scenario with the Messiah. And then he said this, what, what they did not expect and the rightful heirs to the kingdom, the rightful recipients who should have received the Messiah, who should have recognized the Messiah, who should have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is 
ultimate destruction. So Jesus, or in other words, hell, hell. So what Jesus literally said was at the centurion, he was shocked and surprised at his faith in simply believing that all Jesus had to do was speak the word. And so therefore Jesus said, according to your faith, because it is clear as Jesus just marveled at his faith, according to your faith, let it be done. And his small child servant was healed immediately. So now that I said this part, here is something in addition that we also have to recognize. Notice that Jesus was taken by surprise. Notice and he said in the sense, I've searched all of Israel for such great faith. Here's the point. If Jesus is God, how can you surprise God? He knows all things ahead of time. He knows this man's faith. He knows exactly what this man will do. Jesus not only knows this man's faith, but he knows the faith of all of Israel. He does not have to search and to seek for such or desire for a confrontation of some Jew with this great faith. So why, if Jesus is God, you cannot surprise God. God knows all things which takes us back to what I taught you earlier, which I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on, but simply to say when Jesus as God, the second person of the triune, when God came down in the flesh of Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Philippians chapter two, he not so much as laid aside his powers, but he laid aside, he emptied himself of the divine prerogative. That is being found in human flesh. Jesus limited himself. He self limited himself not to operate as God, but Jesus operated as a man who was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So since he was operating as a man and not God, he, he did not engage. He did not engage in his divine powers to know all things, to be everywhere at the same time, to exercise all power, but he limited himself to engage in using his powers according to the will of God. So therefore, as a man, he could be surprised. Okay, so it's not saying Jesus is not God. It's simply saying, like Paul told us in Philippians 2, he did not exercise divine powers at all times. He self-limited himself to operate as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. All right, so now let's move to the next section. Verse 14, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, 
he himself took our infirmities and carried away our sick, our diseases. Okay. So now we get into the instance of Jesus entering to Peter's house and there Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, a great fever that has her laying even in bed. And so simply Jesus just simply touched her hand. The whole section, power over sickness, all sicknesses and diseases. He touched her hand and the fever left her. Now what is interesting about that, and we know this, when a fever really strikes you bad, as he, clear as this is what's going on with Peter's mother-in-law, strikes you bad and even has you bedridden, it takes a while to recuperate. So you have to kind of rest a while and drink and be rehydrated and all that stuff. And then later on, you'll be able to get up and start going about as usual. But notice the extent of Jesus's healing, how perfect and complete it is. Not only when he touched her, was she healed of the fever, but her body was immediately recuperated. It was made complete. She did not have to recover. Jesus recovered her instantly to the point that she was able to get up and begin to minister to serve Jesus. And then he continues on in this section in talking about the furtherance of Jesus's power over sickness and diseases that at the evening time they brought unto him people who had all types of demon possessions and he just simply cast them out with a word. He just simply cast the demons out. Now, later on, I'm going to talk about certain miracles of the Messiah in casting out demons, but I'm not going to talk about it now. But what I will emphasize here is this. Notice how peculiar it is. When you look into the Old Testament and even in the intertestamental period, intertestament period, okay, that is the period between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the ministry of John the Baptist. You didn't see many demon possessed. Count how much demon activity you see. But once the New Testament begins, that is the coming of the Messiah, notice how much demonic activity that you have. And this is simply because this, notice, this is the coming of the Messiah. So basically what Satan has done, he has garnered all of his forces, if you'll let me say it that way. He has garnered all of his forces to come against Jesus as he is now in the flesh. And this is why you see this flurry of de demonic activity in the New Testament, especially during the ministry of Jesus. All right, but nevertheless, so he says in the casting out of the demons, as well as the healings of all sicknesses and diseases, it is a fulfillment of that which the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 healing the diseases physically and ultimately healing all of our sickness and diseases spiritually when the Messiah should go to the cross and die for our sins. Now let's move to the next section. And now he deals with discipleship and we will see two uh, principal points that Jesus will speak of concerning discipleship. So let's begin in verse number 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Jesus said to him, hmm, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 21. Another of the disciples said to Jesus, said to him, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat. OK, let's stop there to deal with those two principles. So now as Jesus has this large crowd around him, he departs to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A scribe and a scribe is nothing more than a teacher of the law came and said to him. And what you have to feel is the excitedness of the scribe, the excited tone in his voice. And look at the very uh, um, background of everything happening with Jesus, casting out devils, healing all manners of sickness and, de and diseases. People are beginning to believe that he is the Messiah. So the scribe is excited and he wants to go with Jesus in following the Messiah in all of this excitement. So in other words, he wants to hang with Jesus so he can be counted as one of them. You see, so there is, it seems to be a not so good reason why he wants to follow Jesus. And you can see why he's excited with all of the flurry of things going around Jesus. He wants to be in that bunch. And remember, I told you how even the disciples of Jesus that Jesus had chosen would always be arguing about the greatest and all of that. But so when he says to Jesus, I follow you wherever you go, excited as he want to be. Jesus took a pen and let all the air out of his little bubble and says, consider what you do, this excitement that you have about me and what you think that this is really about. Have sober judgment in yourself. In other words, think carefully. There's a price to be paid when you follow me. But let me tell you something, and that's what Jesus meant when he says, notice foxes have holes. At the end of the day, they got a, a home to go back to. Birds of the air have nests. At the end of the day, when they get through with all of their flying around, they have a home to go to. But the son of man, and this is what Jesus refers to himself, doesn't even have a home to go back to. My ministry is more than flashes and light and all of these things. It will demand suffering. It will demand you giving up things to follow me. Consider this before you come and follow me. Or in other words, this is what it truly takes to be my disciple. Now, so th that's one of the principles that Jesus was teaching this particular guy. But I also want to draw your attention to Jesus's reference to himself. He calls himself son of man. And this has Old Testament prescription in the son of man. We see that in the book of Daniel as the term for the Messiah, as term for the Messiah. But also son of man has a reflection to the humanity of Jesus in that Jesus comes in a human body. And ultimately what will be done with that human body? It will go to the cross suffering. So the idea that Jesus is saying to him is discipleship indeed demands willingness to suffer for Jesus sake. Think about that before you follow me. Now we get to the next person. 
And this person is already a disciple of Jesus, already following Jesus, but he follows Jesus from time to time. Remember, I told you guys earlier that were disciples who followed Jesus off and on, but Jesus in calling the 12 was calling them to permanent discipleship. So this man was offering to permanently follow Jesus, but only after he buried his father. But what you have to understand is, according to Jewish customs, the man's father was not dead yet. So he was simply saying to Jesus, let me go back home. And once my father dies, and once I get all of these other affairs in order, then I will come back and begin to follow you on a permanent basis. And what was Jesus response to him? Let the dead bury their own dead. Let the spiritual, spiritually dead, unsaved, people who are not believing that I am the Messiah, let the spiritual dead bury their physical dead. And you come and follow me. And so Jesus is simply saying that the kingdom of God that I am preaching, the Messiah, me being here, it demands immediate response. So therefore Jesus was teaching a principle of priority. Follow me above all things. Follow me above all people. Put nothing and no one ahead of me. So therefore we see the two principles in these men who are saying that they will follow Jesus. Two principles that Jesus was setting forth. The principle of being willing to suffer and the principle of acknowledging that Jesus comes before everybody, even your own parents. Okay, so now let's move a little further. Verse number 23. When he got into, a, into the boat, his disciples followed him. I like the way that said that. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus was asleep and they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. He said to them, why are you afraid? <laughs> you men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Okay, so now let's look at this situation. So they got in the boat and his disciples followed him. I like the idea. It's like almost a continuation of those two men. It kind of left it uh, unspoken of whether or not the man who said that he was gonna bury his father and the other man, whether or not they actually followed Jesus, but it simply said his disciples followed him. So nevertheless, they got into a boat. And when they got into a boat, all of a sudden in the tempest of the Sea of Galilee, there were great winds and waves. Now. It was nothing uncommon for such an event as this. It would always come about in the uh, Sea of Galilee. Waves and winds would always come about. So this was nothing new to come about and then to dissipate just as quickly as they came about. But there was something unique, which I'm going to simply say now to you without any suspense. This, I believe, was clearly demonic. Why? 
These men that Jesus had chose, remember, they were fishermen. So they were, they knew how in the Sea of Galilee, such a thing would come about. And, and so no big deal. They, they, we've done this before. We've gone through this before. But this time there was such a overcoming of the wind and the waves. Notice how the waves were starting to get into the, into the ship and sink the ship. And the wind was blowing so hard. This was unusual. And this is why I say that this had a demonic inference. This was Satan in all of this. As you will see, notice even, and I don't want to rehash all of this. What did Jesus do? When Jesus was baptized, led of the spirit, he was tempted by Satan. Remember what I told you? In all of the temptations with Satan, it was simply devised to get Jesus to fail in one way or another, not to complete his messianic mission, not to ultimately go to the cross. And notice here, to kill Jesus here in this ship, he would never go to the cross. What would the end results be? We would be in our sins. We would go to hell. All of mankind would go to hell because Jesus must pay the price for our sins. Demonic. Okay. But let's keep working through the text. So they, these fishermen in fear out of their minds, Jesus, he's just sleeping on sleeping in the ship as if nothing is happening. He is not moved by anything. I'm going to talk about that. And so they go fear, Lord, 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 save us, save us, save us. We're about to die. We're about to die. And so Jesus awakens out of his sleep. What's the first thing that he does? He gives a slight, slight rebuke to his disciples. But notice the nature of his rebuke. Notice what he says. Oh, you of little faith. In other words, they should have had faith to believe that nothing would happen to them. Why? Why is this? Because as Jesus would later on say in his prayers, Lord, these men that you gave to me and none of them have I lost except the son of perdition so that the scripture that is Judas, the scripture might be fulfilled. It was written that none of those whom God had given to Jesus, Jesus would lose. And also nothing could happen to Jesus before he got to the cross. Remember what Satan said? Jump off the temple. And if you jump off this highest point of temple, he will send his angels to catch you so you wouldn't even hurt your foot against the stone. And Jesus simply said, you take God at his word. Don't test God. Believe God. The point that I was making then, the point that Jesus is making now is nothing can happen to the Messiah until the cross and that's when Jesus says unto Satan, this hour is now your hour. Now it is under your power. That is the crucifixion of me. But until that time should come, nothing can happen to Jesus. And therefore nothing could happen to his disciples. So he gave them a little slight rebuke and says, <laughs> you have no faith. And then after that, he got up and you can see Jesus and I can see Jesus in a majestic form as he stands to the wind and simply rebukes it with a word, a word from his mouth. And that the wind has no ears. The waters have no ears, but they heard him and obeyed him. He rebuked 
the wind. Peace be still. And immediately, remember how I told you about those waters on the Galilee? It would, the waves would come and stuff like that. And the wind, it would come, but normally after such an episode, like the winds and stuff, the winds would die down. The waves would still be flapping up against the ship because the, it takes time for it to calm down. But notice immediately what happened. Immediate calm both to the wind and the waves. So the, the disciples looking at this, they said, oh, my God, I have never seen such a thing. And notice what they say. This is important to what they say. They ask a question. They do what? They ask a question. Notice the nature of the question. What kind of man or to toss such a one? What kind of man is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, they already believed because remember, they were following Jesus. Jesus came and called them to himself. They already believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but their understanding of him was still incomplete. They did not fully understand just who he was. That's why they're marveling. They said, okay, he's a Messiah. We believe that because we're following him already. But the stuff that he does, just who is this man? And that sets us up for the following section as it leaves us here. Question, what kind of man is this? Then we begin to answer just kind, what kind of man he is. So now with that, let's continue. Verse number 28. When he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men were demon possessed, met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out saying to Jesus, that is notice, what business do we have with each other? Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him saying, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and they went into the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Now, remember the question, what kind of man, what sort of a man is this? Who is this that the waves and the sea, the air and sea obey him? Okay, but look, when he came out, so we go into, we now settle, the ship is on the other side, move into a region of the Gadarenes. Okay. When they get there, there were two men who were grievously demon possessed, whom the people of the city 
could do nothing. And therefore these men lived in the tombs and they were fierce men, not even allowing some people to pass by them. And even as other gospel writers say, they tried to bind them. They could not be bound. So they were strong and furiously demon possessed men. And they had their strength because they were full of demons. Okay. But nevertheless, it speaks of these two men coming out. Other gospel writers will say one. The reason why the other gospel writers say one man is because he was the lead speaker and they were simply identifying the speaker of the two. But Matthew speaks of both of them. They came out and noted that they came out of the tomb with extreme fears at all other times. Notice now they would not allow other men to pass. They would attack these men. But notice as soon as they came to Jesus, they stopped. They stopped. And when they stopped, they immediately recognized Jesus. Why? Because demons, demonic spirits know who Jesus truly is. They can look beyond his human flesh and know just like Satan as he as he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He looked beyond that flesh and knew exactly who he was. So demons, nothing more than fallen angels look beyond his flesh and they knew exactly who he was. And what did they say? Listen, nobody said, what do we have to do with you? What did they say? Son of God, son of God is the divine title for Jesus. Notice how earlier Jesus said, called himself son of man. These demons are referring to him as son of God. They are calling him God. So in all of this, it takes us back to answer the questions that the disciples did when they marveled at Jesus calming the air and the waves. They said, what sort of a man? And now the demons answered the question. He is not a mere man. He is God in the flesh. He's not just simply a man. He is God almighty or the term son of God. So let us continue on. So when he came out, they said, uh, uh, they, they knew that there would be an appointed time of judgment for them. And so, and they knew it would be Jesus who would administer their punishment at that set time. And so they began to wonder as they are seeing Jesus, the son of God, they're simply saying, it's not time for us to go to go to the lake of fire yet. Is it? <laughs> so what are you doing here? Are you here now to punish us before the ordained time? But they say, okay, we already know you are going to cast us out. Have mercy on us, son of God. So the demons are begging Jesus, have mercy on us. We don't want to be spirit, spiritless bodies. We want to inhabit something. So that on the other side was a, a group of pig. I think there were 2000 in number. They said, okay, since you're going to cast us out, will you at least cast us into these pigs? And so Jesus showed both mercy and he showed absolute authority over these demons as he's been doing that, that we've been reading so far. He simply said, go. And they came out of those two men, which lets us see something to inhabit over 2000 pigs. These two men were full of demon. Remember, as I said, what is your name? Legion. We are many, but we're not going to get into that because Matthew didn't bring all of that out, but they were full of demons. 
They came out of these two men, went into the, the swine, and the swine went insane with all of these demons inside of them and just ran into the, into the uh, uh, waters of the Sea of Galilee and, and were killed. And notice, they drove them into the water. But the point is, notice it tells about demons and what they actually do to people and what their actual desire is to destroy. The thief, as Jesus would later say, comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And we see this with this swine. But anyway, so the men who were watching over these swine went into the city, told them about the swine that just got killed and everything that happened to these demon-possessed men. And all of the people came from the city and they were afraid of Jesus, which these fools should have welcomed him. Or should I say foolish men? But nevertheless, they did not welcome Jesus, but they began to beg Jesus to leave from their city. And so Jesus just simply departed from them. He didn't stay where he was not welcomed. But what we saw, let's go back and take a look once again. Matthew chapter eight begins Jesus' authority. Five, six, and seven, Sermon on the Mountain, was Jesus' authority in his teaching. In Matthew chapter eight and even following beyond, we will see Jesus' authority over demonic spirits and over all types of sickness and disease. All right, guys, thanks for joining me in that teaching. Join me again as we continue in teaching in Matthew, when we get into chapter nine, Jesus' continued demonstration over his authority over demons, spirits, sickness, disease, all of these things, as well as the call of Matthew. <laughs> Join me the next time. See you then. Producing these videos take a lot of time and they take resources too, guys. All the, the computers, the cameras, the blah, 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 blah. They take resources. So, if God touches your mind and your heart, bless this ministry. If it helps you, if these teachings help you, bless the ministry, send a donation, or even become a monthly partner with me so that I can continue to do these things. I don't do it. I don't do it to make money, God forbid but I do it that the ministry may be supported and that I might continuously with joy because it does give my heart joy to continuously bring these lessons to you for your benefit, for your spiritual enrichment. Okay, so help me out.